Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. Hi, my name's Mark Creamer, and in this final episode in the three-part series, I want to explore the idea of psychological resilience, what it means, how it works, can we teach it, and so on. And we'll finish up looking at the idea of prevention in traumatic stress. Are there things we can do to prevent people developing post-traumatic mental health problems like PTSD? When I'm doing talks on this subject, I often joke that when I become king of the world, I'm going to ban the term resilience altogether because it means so many different things and is used in so many different ways. And yet, at the same time, I think we can all agree that there is something very important there. And I think that most people do share some kind of common understanding of what it might mean to be psychologically resilient. Joining me to explore the issues raised in this episode are two of the leading clinical researchers in the field of resilience and early intervention. Sam Harvey is Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New South Wales and Chief Psychiatrist at the Black Dog Institute in Sydney. Patricia Watson is a psychologist at the American National Centre for PTSD. As I was saying in my introduction there, Sam, the, uh, the word resilience carries many different meanings and encompasses multiple kind of processes. So I'd like to explore some of those concepts with you and Patricia in this episode. But let me start off with a basic question of whether you think resilience is a useful concept. Is, is, it, a, is it a term that we should be hanging on to? I think it's a useful concept. Um, I, I, I do have some problems with the term because I think the way in which everybody uses the term is now to think about resilience as being something that an individual either has or doesn't have. And I think that leads to all sorts of problems. But I think the core concept of thinking about why some people are able to tolerate certain circumstances or even thrive in them is one that we should look at and we can learn a lot from. Sam seems to be uh, cautiously saying yes there, Patricia. What, what do you think? Is the idea of resilience a useful concept? So I, I actually think that the idea of resilience is a useful concept, in part because it allows us to look at a full spectrum of different ways that people respond to stress and adversity and different ways that they get through life and adapt to circumstances. So in that sense, I think it's a useful concept, but I do think that we have a long way to go to really understand how we, how we talk about it, because there are so many different definitions of resilience in the literature. Some people think of it as an ongoing process of change and adaptation. Some people think of it as just an outcome, you know, uh, in, in terms of stable functioning, uh, non-adverse effects. And other people talk about it as a broad collection of abilities. So I think we, we just still have a lot, long way to go. Yeah, we, we absolutely have a long way to go, I think. But, of course, hopefully we can answer at least some of the questions today. What, what do we think about whether resilience is a stable trait? Is, is that what we find? What you will typically see are trajectories of resilient recovery to events in people's lives that go up and down. And you also see that some people are resilient in uh, in some areas of their life and not in others. I mean, we've all worked with people who look super resilient at work, but when you scratch the surface on their home life and their personal life, maybe not so resilient and vice versa. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think, Sam? Is is resilience a stable trait? No, I, I don't think resilience is a stable trait. And, and I think, I, I say that for a number of reasons. I mean, I think each individual probably has a range of resilience that they move between depending uh, on what else is happening in their life, what other supports they've got. Um, I, I think the other reason we can say it apart from that observation is we know that we can teach people some skills that can increase their resilience and equally we know we can put them in situations such as a bullying, an unhelpful boss, uh, extreme fatigue when we dramatically decrease their resilience. So I think we've got abundance evidence that it moves over time. Do you have um, a kind of working definition of resilience? Yes, I do, although I, I, I do find that I keep giving a slightly different different definition each time I'm asked about it and that probably speaks to some of the problems with the concept but if you would ask me that question a few years ago I think what I would have said is is resilience is what defines why one person becomes unwell and one person doesn't become unwell following a a situation I, I think now what I would say is it's a much more broader construct and it's really about what is it that allows some people to bounce back from adversity and I think it's that ability to bounce back is the closest to a definition I can get that I'm comfortable with. Yeah okay fair enough. Um, So what about you Patricia do you have a working definition of resilience? So um, because of the work that I do and, and I work in the realm of you know working with people who either are are working in at, you know, high stress jobs or people who've been, you know, exposed to traumatic stress in disasters or other settings. Typically, the way that I would define resilience is that people can recover or uh, adapt to challenging or adverse circumstances and that they can do it in a way that allows them to function uh, more, I guess, to get to get back to being able to function uh, in a in a in a quicker way than other people, maybe. Um, so hmm. I might, I would probably define it in that sense. Yeah. Um, to, so do you think we're talking about a return to pre-trauma functioning? I'm actually not sure I would call it pre-trauma functioning because what I would say is that I think people tend to integrate events in a way that um, sometimes they never return to pre-levels. And, and actually... Other, in other ways, they actually return to higher levels of functioning because they've, they've grown and, and they've, they've uh, gathered strength and wisdom from their experiences. So I don't know if I like the term pre-trauma function, uh, levels. I like uh, adap- adap- adaptive levels, you know, whatever those might be. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually. It's an important point to make. Um, but can I just pick, on, uh, pick up on really something that you said before, that the concept kind of encompasses um, stuff about what perhaps I was like before the incident hit, something about what I did perhaps during my experiences and also something about what I do afterwards or whatever, as well as being some kind of outcome measure of how I ended up. It's, it's a kind of complex mix of all those, is it? Yes, I would believe, I believe that it is a complex mix of before, during and after. And, um, you know, 
yeah, in, interesting to think about it that way. In fact, I, I've just been looking at uh, an interesting video where a person talks about a life-changing diagnosis in their life. And I find it very interesting the way they describe it as a kind of a flipping back and forth between um, uh, you know, overreacting and underreacting until they finally kind of get to a place where they can call their life a new normal. Yes, absolutely. I, I like that idea of resilience as being um, something about the ability to adapt. Yeah, I find it really, really interesting that people are so adaptive and that the road to that adaptation is often a kind of back and forth sort of, uh, you know, flipping back and forth between different reactions. Sure. So it, you, you're yeah. both clearly agreed on the fact that this is not some stable trait that's there all the time, either you've got it or you haven't. Although, uh, having said that, I wonder whether genetics does play a part. Yeah, if you look at some of the resilience literature, um, the people that are the top researchers, uh, like Anne Mastin, would say that she believes that some people actually are born with this drive towards mastery that's higher. You know, it's like it's sort of like intelligence quotient, but some people have this sort of drive for mastery that may be genetic, who knows what it is, but that the vast majority of people tend to achieve resilience through their, uh, through some factors that are related to resilience, such as the type of social support they've received across the course of their life, uh, uh, you know, such as a sense of self-efficacy, you know, a feeling that, okay, I can get through this because I have been able to get through other things, that type of thing. Exactly, exactly. So the environmental influences are critical. And, uh, and of course, we can't underestimate or forget the importance of the childhood years, that developmental period when so many of these skills will be learned, uh, or of course, in some cases, not learned. Anyway, um, let's move on. I guess people who are at the highest risk of exposures to potentially traumatic events are often those in high-risk occupations. We're thinking of uh, the military and the emergency services. And these people tend to work in teams. And that raises the question for me about whether we should be thinking of resilience only as an individual kind of construct, or is it helpful to, to think about kind of team levels of, of resilience? I absolutely think we need to think about resilience as not just residing in the individual. Um, you know, I think sometimes the way I imagine it in my mind is like the the individual is, is at the centre, but then you have these layers of Zorb balls around them. Um, and, and, and I don't know whether you've ever been Zorbing, but, you know, you put inside a large inflatable ball and roll down a hill. And I think in a way we can think about resilience as being a bit like that, that you have these different layers of the Zorb ball around an individual as they bounce down the, uh, you know, the, the, the whatever, the, the hill of, of all the life events that they go through. And, and actually it's the things that surround the individual are what really have an impact on the rare, their resilience. I I, uh, I should just say that I have seen people in Zorb balls and I've no desire to put myself under such risk, to be honest. But I, I do really want to come back to that later. I think that the idea of working with teams or organisations or communities is so important when we're thinking about building resilience. But first, uh, I want to look at the idea of measurement. If I am going to measure it or if I'm going to get some idea of how resilient a person is, for example, or even a team, is it something I measure before they experience a 
traumatic event, if you like? Is it something I measure during their exposure or something I measure afterwards or some combination of those? Where would you be putting your bang for the buck in terms of measurement? Yeah, and I guess the place where this where this question has a really sort of pointy real-world uh, application is some of the work we do with first responder agencies where they sort of say to us, well, we've got, you know, a thousand people that want to apply for a hundred new spots we've got as trainee firefighters. How should we choose which ones are most resilient and are, and are going to um, be less likely to become unwell based on what we're exposing them to? And that's where a lot of the research has, has happened. Um, there is some indication that that sort of some of the simple self-report measures of resilience, things like the Connor Davidson resilience scale, where, you know, essentially you ask people to reflect back on their life experiences and to what extent they've been able to bounce back from things, that that certainly does predict their ability to bounce back in the future. And I guess that's not surprising that that, that sort of, you know, past experiences does predict what happens again in the future. But the reality is, trying to use those things in a real-world setting to to predict who's likely to become unwell or not has not proved to be um, very successful, that, that even though these things might be associated with increased or decreased risk over time, at an individual level, trying to predict who's going to become unwell or who's not, or in, it just doesn't work, and you end up having to deny far too many people opportunities based on those measures you get slightly more accurate prediction of people's vulnerability by placing them in simulated situations. So if you get uh, first responders who are in training and you make them watch very unpleasant videos of motor vehicle accidents and you can measure their physiological and emotional response to what they witness, that is better than any of those sort of self-report things. Um, but again, you know, I think what it doesn't capture is the way in which that individual's resilience will change over time. And, and I, I think any attempts to try and predict the future with these types of things have always turned out to be rather disappointing. Yeah, quite, quite, quite. And I think, you know, there's a danger with the kind of measures that we tend to use, and even perhaps something like the Connor Davidson, that, that really what we're measuring is an outcome, you know, effectively the person's scoring low on a symptom measure, so that it's almost, um, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Uh, I, I, absolutely. And I think, I think the mistake that we make is that we think that because we've got a way of measuring resilience in a way that sort of stands up to some of the, the associations we look at, that that means then we've got a way of measuring where that individual falls on this sort of fake spectrum of stable resilience. I think the only reason for measuring it like that is to understand a bit about how you can move it and to think about what are the interventions you can do to shift everyone's resilience in the direction you want. But um, but I, I do really want to come back to that later. I think that the idea of working with teams or organisations or communities is so important when we're thinking about building resilience. But first, uh, I want to look at the idea of measurement. Yeah, I think it's worth continuing to try to define outcomes and to define uh, measures of resilience. Lots of different ways to think about it, but I think it's worth 
continuing to refine those. I don't think we're there yet. No, quite, quite. Okay, let's go on then. And uh, so if we, we're striving to measure it, we're striving to define it, we're striving to measure it. The next question then is, can we teach it? And of course, you've done a lot of work in um, areas related to resilience training around your combat stress first day work and your disaster work and so on. So with that experience behind you, and I confess that I'm a bit sceptical about this, but with that experience behind you, do, do you think we can teach someone to be more resilient? I think that we can teach people to be exposed to resilience in others. And by being exposed to what it looks like in others, they themselves can become more resilient. So I do believe that you can enhance the environment around people to maximize the possibility that they'll have good role models for resilience, good leadership, for instance. All of us have had leaders uh, and bosses in our life who have taught us by virtue of their example, you know, how to be more resilient, how to handle stress. I think we get it from our parents as we grow up, but I think that the people around us um, in our jobs and in our personal life role model for us all the time what it looks like to get through events and to, um, you know, build skills that will help you, um, you know, become more resilient. So yes, I do believe that you can enrich a person's environment to the degree that they'll, that it will maximize, you know, the, the likelihood that they, they will become more resilient. And you'd go along with that, I guess, uh, Sam, in terms of modifying the person's environment and perhaps, as we were saying earlier, by working with teams? I, I, I think um, in terms of, of, of bang for buck, if you're going to try and enhance the resilience of a group of, of individuals, workers, military personnel, then doing it at the level of the team is a lot easier than trying to do it at the level of the individual. And we know, um, you know, from the big studies that were done of when um, military personnel deployed to some of the recent conflicts in the Middle East, if you looked at what predicted um, rates of PTSD or other mental health problems when they came back, one of the strongest predictors was uh, the level of group cohesion within the units that deployed. It was the leadership within the units. It was the level of training that those individuals got and that those teams got. And I think that's what I mean when I talk about resilience residing at the level of a team or a group of people. And um, we see exactly the same in first responders, that um, those those team level variables about leadership and cohesion and um, joint understanding of what, what the mission and purpose of what they're doing is, they're hugely important and they are things that we can influence and we've shown that we can influence with, with relatively simple training interventions. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly I am on the same page as you there. I think things like leadership and cohesion and, and team morale and so on uh, and levels of conflict are critical. And uh, a lot of your work is consistent with that, of course, Patricia. Um, you would see the value of working with teams, I'm sure. Yes, I very much believe that. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. Because as we've adapted our, we have this, you know, five-factor framework that we that we use to to you know build uh, peer support models, right? And the five factors are things that are supported by a kind of a very broad literature base that that show that people can get through times of adversity better if they have these factors in their life. Being able to get to a, a greater sense of safety, calming. 
social connectedness, this sense of self-efficacy, and a sense of hope, which is you know kind of a broad term. But we use that framework to to develop uh, a peer support model and a self-care model. But what I want to say about that is we've taken that framework to different cultures. And the way that we adapt it in those different cultures is to have focus groups where we talk, we, we pick, you know, the people that seem to be the best leaders or the, the people that people like to talk with. And we ask them questions. What does this look like for you? How do you calm yourself and how do you calm others, for instance? And by by years of now doing this in several different cultures, I've seen that people um, have this way of um, enacting some of these strengths and that one of the ways they've described that they've become stronger and more resilient is by what Richard Gist, one of my mentors, would suggest. It's called the one-up model, where if you've got somebody who's a step up from you, if they're slightly more advanced than you in one way or another, or, or maybe even more than one step up, but they've gotten through things in their life and they've they've gotten to another level or, or a better place, for instance, those are the people that are going to affect you and help you to to be drawn towards recovery or to getting more resilient. And I've I've had so many interviews with people at this point that I've seen it over and over and again in firefighters and police officers. They they model from people that who they respect and ap- actually they won't listen to anyone else other than people they respect. Yeah. And I think that highlights the uh, the importance of having champions for resilience and good mental health within the organization. And um, and as you say, you know, those people may not necessarily be high up in the organization, although I think that's always good. But the important thing, as you say, is that um, regardless of their level, they are respected. So the team stuff, the modeling, the environment is obviously very important. Um, but let's come back to the individual, Sam, and, and uh, what do we know about individual factors? We know that one of the things that defines someone's ability to bounce back or be resilient to a situation is the extent to which they're able to, to cope with the stresses and demands that's put on them. And we can teach people different ways of coping in situations. I mean, that's, that's what we uh, as clinicians do when we do cognitive behavioral therapy or mindfulness-based therapy with individuals. We we are trying to retrain them and their brains to respond in different ways in different situations. So I, I don't think it's surprising that we can do similar things around their coping skills and therefore their resilience. What would be the core elements of, of that kind of training? So you're talking about coping skills. I suppose we're talking about things like arousal management, emotion regulation kind of skills in, in part. Yes, I think it's, I, I mean, I think there's a couple of different levels. There's, and of course, you know, in a way, the natural way that we all develop resilience to situations is that kind of exposure and learning from it. You know, what what we what happened to all of us when we were younger is that you were kind of put in situations that you didn't handle wonderfully well, but that didn't totally overwhelm you. And then you learned from that and you responded slightly differently next time. So, you know, actually, I think, one of the best ways of increasing resilience for these at-risk groups we've been talking about, like firefighters and military personnel, is just to make sure that their their practical training is done in the right way, that they have an opportunity to make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, be gradually exposed to, to more difficult situations. Uh, aside from that practical training, I do think that there are things around teaching people to manage their arousal 
and also that, that some of the research we've done with first responders is around teaching them mindfulness skills as a way of, of teaching them a really practical, I suppose, hands-on strategy of, of how to deal with difficult emotions and how to be able to step back from some of those overwhelming emotions that they may be feeling after particularly difficult incidents. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, as well as the idea of, of practice or inoculation uh, and good training in their roles, there are a whole lot of skills that we can teach individuals. Uh, and I guess we think about our three core domains. So the first is physiological. Uh, this is going to be our arousal reduction strategies, maybe breathing, looking after yourself physically and so on. Uh, the second domain is going to be our cognitive emotional domain, uh, being able to detach, uh, being able to develop some control through, through techniques like mindfulness. And, and I think also here we've got, you know, some level of optimism as being very important. Uh, and then, then our third domain is going to be behavioral. And that, of course, might include, uh, life balance and in, in building in enjoyable activities and so on. Uh, but also, of course, accessing social support from colleagues and friends and family. And, and really all of those things are going to come together and contribute to resilience. And I think, in fact, if we come back to your five domains, Patricia, of safety, calming, connectedness, self-efficacy and hope, uh, they're really a kind of higher level representation or, or, or a model of those skills that we've just been talking about, aren't they? Yes. One of the things I like about the fact that this is a, a framework, and I call it a framework more than I call it a model, um, is that you can, you can take those elements and that you can decide for yourself what it means to have good social connection in your life. You can decide for yourself how to calm yourself or to calm others. Because I've seen in too many places, people come in with this prescription of how to do specific things. And that hits maybe a portion of the population. But I don't know about you, but I know many people that aren't going to ever master mindfulness. That's not their way, for instance, you know, and they, their way of calming themselves is more physical, or they, they would rather not talk about things. They would rather work it out, you know, in a different way. So I, I like the fact that we can give people this framework and say, look, if you can at, in, at all, you know, in whatever way works for you, try to, you know, work towards some of these things. You don't have to have all five of them, but if you can work towards some of them, then we've given people the, the, the ability to figure out for themselves what makes the most sense for themselves, you know, not, not try to tell them exactly what to do. Sure. And we tend to, uh, at least I tend to think of those five principles being incorporated in our immediate aftermath interventions. So things like psychological first aid and so on, other things we do there, afterwards. But would you say also that these are really could be the core of the preparation stuff for people who we know are going into difficult situations? We can be teaching them these skills before they're exposed? Uh, yes, I do believe that we can teach people um, to uh, learn skills that fit within these elements uh, throughout their life and that they, they form a good foundation for people in many different areas of their life. Um, and, and 
as I said, you can you can teach different skills that fit within each. I absolutely believe that. Yes, of course. And actually, that's a very good point you make there, that we're not simply talking about a single isolated event like a natural disaster or whatever. We are talking about a way of living, a way of dealing with day-to-day life stress and so on. So that's a very good point, yeah. It's not, it's not as if resilience just applies to that event. So, Sam, if, if we take those broad principles and build our training around them and the interventions that work, we're saying we're going to get the biggest bang for our buck by working at the team or organisational level, but we should also be adding to that with our individual interventions. Yes. So when I speak to some of these high-risk organisations and if they ask me what should we be doing to increase the resilience of our workforce – you know, I say, well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to make sure your your managers and your leaders are trained. And this is not training them to, you know, understand what PTSD is and what depression is and all that kind of mental health awareness. What it is, is training those leaders with practical skills about what they should be doing as leaders in difficult situations, what they should be doing when they notice people struggling. Um, and, and that's, I think, what we know is that the best way to improve that team level resilience. And then once you've got that type of stuff in place, if you've still got money, resources, time to do other stuff, then that's when you might think about trying to train those individuals with some additional skills for them to use. Okay, so we've definitely got some training strategies that might be helpful in enhancing resilience. I think, though, the caveat to that. And again, I, I don't think this is surprising necessarily that we um, that it takes a bit of work to do that. And so, if someone's coming along and telling you that they can increase someone's resilience with a one-off training, I mean that's that's nonsense, and we've got evidence that that's nonsense. Um, but if someone comes along and says, "Okay, you know, I'm going. This is a, a skill that you're going to have to." train and learn and and get better at and over weeks and months we can increase your skill capacity and therefore increase your resilience to these particular circumstances then yeah there's evidence that we can do that well i I am i'm certainly glad that you're a bit cautious about it because i'd have to say that my reading of the data is that we haven't got a lot of good research to demonstrate that we can actually get better outcomes, that people recover better after traumatic exposures if they've had some kind of resilience training. But I take your point, perhaps often that has been because the so-called resilience training has been a, a one-off two-hour lecture or something. I think that's that's right. And of course it is, you know, there are relatively... There, there aren't that many opportunities in our world to reliably predict when bad things are going to happen to individuals. Uh, arguably, military deployment and, and some first responder work is, is really one of the few occasions that you can do that. And I, I agree, what we've been able to show is that you can improve individuals' measures of resilience in terms of whether that means that in six months' time when something traumatic or distressing happens to them that you see significantly different mental health outcomes, that's really the next step that that has to be taken. And, um, you know, it's a necessary step because if you can't show that, then what's the point? But um, it is, I think, technically a difficult thing to try and prove. It, it is, isn't it? It is very difficult. But I guess we do need to keep researching uh, the best ways of providing this kind of training. Well, I think that's true, yes. And I think maybe, um, you know, maybe with time, actually, we end up 
not having this dichotomy of, of you know, well, in the morning you're doing your physical training to, to, to be a, a police officer in the afternoon, we're going to do your resilience training, that, you know, maybe they begin to get merged together and actually we can find ways to, you know, at the same time these police trainees are doing some of the live ammunition work, we use that as a way to reinforce some of these resilience trainings rather than them happening in, in isolation and then us leaving it up to the individuals to try and merge it all together. Absolutely. And we're going to get much better transfer of skills into the real world, aren't we, if we teach those skills uh, in, in real life kind of situations. So, I, yeah, absolutely agree. Okay, Sam and Patricia, you are perhaps a touch more optimistic than me, clearly, in terms of being able to teach (laughs) resilience. Uh, Let's just move on to, to, I guess, if we move, and it's a false dichotomy, but if we move beyond the idea of resilience to uh, whether or not we might be able to prevent the development of post-traumatic mental health problems. And whenever I'm asked this question, my first response is always to say, well, we need to reduce the prevalence of trauma, because if you do that, you're going to reduce the prevalence. And I kind of say it, not, not only to be a trite or simplistic, but also I think we, we should be really working towards that. But I wonder whether you, um, either of you really, Patricia or Sam, have any ideas about what we can be, other things that we might be doing to prevent the development of post-traumatic mental health problems, PTSD and others? Um, so I would agree with Sam on many of the things that he said. Um, I, I, I have also... Uh, just recently, you know, written an, a review article titled PTSD as a Public Mental Health Priority. And I would agree with you that the number one way to prevent PTSD is to reduce the amount of trauma. Um, there's lots of different ways to think about prevention, you know, at the individual level, at the relationship level, the community level, and the societal level, you know. So you would be, you know, reducing anything that would expose somebody uh, to trauma, for instance, including, you know, teaching young adults about alcohol use and responsible driving and um, in relationships, you know, bullying programs and school parenting programs, um, educating people about um, risk and protective mechanisms um, and how those might impact children and, and, and adults at all levels. And at the community level, we do disaster preparedness training and we put lighting on college campuses. We, you know, try to reduce traffic risks and we do neighborhood watch, things like that. And then at the societal levels, obviously, we want more resources for people, um, both, both, you know, educationally as well as just uh, all kinds of resources, physical resources, practical resources. So, yeah, I think, you know, prevention-wise, um, we're trying to to look in terms of um, factors at many different levels. Yes, okay. So that's beforehand. What about during the event while it's actually happening? I think sort of around the time of the event, I, I think a lot of what we're increasingly discovering is that what's most useful at that time is is common sense from those in charge. So, you know, it's about making sure individuals feel supported, looked after, get home safely after a, a terrible shift rather than any type of, of psychological debriefing. Well, during, you know, there's a bit of interest in the idea of being able to reduce arousal while people are in theatre or dealing with a mass casualty or whatever it is, whether by psychological means that we might teach them arousal reduction or even, you know, some people are talking about pharmacological approaches with things like beta blockers. Do you go along with any of that? 
Um, I think that we should always be doing that kind of research. I'm not sure that we're at the place now where we could we can advise use of things like beta blockers, but I'm very interested in this research. I think that it's it's a good idea to continue along those lines of taking a look at what's protective for people. And it could be things like beta blockers. I actually think where perhaps the 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 best sort of traction you can get is is then what happens after the event in terms of the way in which individuals are supported. And there is this sort of, you know, there's increasing evidence that that it is wrong to think that the die of PTSD is cast at the moment of the traumatic event. That's a really important thing, but it's it's what happens in those crucial hours and days afterwards that sort of put the whole context around that traumatic event and um, uh, yeah, know, absolutely. And I think that's where that sort of, in a way, it's almost like post-trauma resilience is one of the things that we should be thinking of. And that has big implications for uh, if we're talking about organisationally for the culture of the organisation, I guess, and the way in which they support their colleagues after the event. I would like to say one more thing about the preventive stuff. So when I was looking at the literature on interventions for PTSD, I noticed that in the methods sections of many of these studies, the average amount of time it took somebody to come in for treatment for PTSD was about 10 years. So what I'd like to say is when you look at some of the best preventive studies that Arik Shalev and his group and Jonathan Bisson have done in, in Israel and England, they did an amazing job trying to set up and make it easy for people to receive early intervention. What you find is that Many people are not ready to receive that until years later. So I think we need to be very careful about the way that we talk about this and try to offer services to people early on to support them, to buffer them, yes. But know that some people will not become open or able to receive treatment for this until years later. So we, I just think that's an important point. It's a very important point, isn't it? And uh, we talked to Megan O'Donnell in the first episode. Uh, she didn't talk about this, but I know that she's done a study of exactly that, of, of, of going, in, going to people in hospital as they're first admitted to the emergency and so on, uh, screening them and then offering them intervention, and less than half would say yes. Even though it's a free intervention, it's all set up for you, still less than half will agree to do it. So that, that is a real p- kind of public health challenge, really, isn't it, how we engage people? Absolutely. Okay, so time is running out, and I'm going to let you have the last word, Sam. I'm wondering whether you would be willing to leave us on a note of optimism, as it were. Um, You know, we do see what look like rising rates of mental health problems among our first responders and among our military. Do you think we're heading in the right direction? I think we are heading in the right direction. And I think what we need is just a little bit of fine tuning. You know, if you look at, we were talking about the Vietnam experience. If we look at where we've moved from there to now in terms of our understanding of PTSD and resilience and the impacts of trauma, you know, they're massive steps in the right direction. I think the adjusting we need to do is I think at the moment we have too much focus on this idea of individuals either being resilient or not being resilient. And I think a lot of the things that are done with good intention, actually chip away at an individual's resilience. And so I think what we're going to see over the next five years is a much more nuanced approach to resilience and will be around saying, well, actually, um, you know, yes, I'm going to do some mental health training, but I'm going to do the right type of training, the training that actually increases your resilience and doesn't make you feel more vulnerable and just focus on the negatives. 
And I think we're going to see that right throughout society. I think we're also going to see things happening back in schools that actually enhance resilience rather than reducing it, which is, I fear, what has happened over recent decades. Good. So I'm picking that up as a note of cautious optimism at the end there, Sam. Okay, we need to draw this fascinating discussion to a close. So I'd like to thank you both very much indeed, Professor Sam Harvey and Dr. Patricia Watson, for sharing your insights with us in this episode. Thanks, Mark. No worries. Thanks. Bye. To sum up what we've been discussing today, while we can't necessarily agree on exactly what resilience is, we are in agreement that the construct is tapping into something important, a set of skills, perhaps a way of looking at the world that does help people to recover from adversity. We know that social support is very important and that in occupational settings, this extends to things like leadership, team cohesion and morale. It seems like we might be able to train people to be more resilient, but that we're not going to achieve much in a one-off two-hour lecture. Rather, building resilience needs to be an ongoing process integrated with the person's routine experiences of stress and trauma in their work. And one of the most important aspects is going to be the recovery environment and the support that the person receives from colleagues and the organisation. That was the last episode in this three-part series, so keep your eye out for more episodes in the future when I hope we'll be able to look at some of the treatment options as well as the specific challenges faced by different traumatised populations. But for the time being, I'm Mark Creamer, and I hope you've enjoyed the series. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 